Before we delve into this dialogue on theology, economy, history, morality, and perhaps most importantly, community, I would like to thank the following groups for making this podcast series possible. Thank you to the Virginia Tech Honors College for graciously sponsoring with their Enrichment Scholarship Program, their ever-growing support for independent student projects, such as this podcast you're about to hear, truly embodies what it means to be part of an honors scholar community. Discover where challenge meets expectation and opportunity at honorscollege.vt.edu. Thank you also to Virginia Tech's Policy Strategic Growth Area Group, who work to provide an opportunity for faculty from diverse disciplines to come together to share their interests and make new connections related to policy. To learn more, check out their work on VTechWorks Destination Area homepage under the Strategic Growth Areas tab. in spite of fear. It's not that they're without fear. It's just that they've decided that whatever the cost is going to be, that this is something worthy of my life, giving my life. King said, if I have to die, I want to die for poor people. And if I have to die, I want to die among poor people. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't hankering for martyrdom. He wasn't, he wasn't that kind of person. He loved life. But if it's required, he says, I, I want to be willing to say yes. You were just listening to the voice of Dr. Virgil Wood, a tenure colleague of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Wood served with Dr. King as a member of his National Executive Board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, established in 1957, and worked closely alongside him to coordinate the state of Virginia in the historic March on Washington on August 28, 1963. He also served as a panelist and member of three White House conferences, under the Johnson, Nixon, and Carter administrations. I had the honor of sitting down with Dr. Wood in Houston, Texas on July 25th, 2018. I was uh, born in Charlottesville and uh, grew up in a little town called Yancey Mills, west of Charlottesville, 12 miles. Lived on a farmstead that my grandfather, Alexander, had, had uh, created after the first, uh, first World War. A family that was resilient, loved the Lord, and uh, in fact our house was two minutes from the church. That was across the street from the school. The school was across the street 
six-room schoolhouse, mm-hmm. one teacher, but Miss Williams, Baptist tall, ruled it with an iron hand mm-hmm. <laughs> and, a, and a yardstick. Yeah. <laughs> Six grades in there, you can imagine mm-hmm. what, what, what kind of challenge she had. Mm-hmm. I, I remember so many of the things that, uh, that I learned from her. Grandma Callie uh, worked uh, in uh, domestic service and uh, she had for herself half a day on Thursday, half a day on Sunday. Most of those times she would stop at our house for dinner. And I remember that uh, at every meal, you know, you, you, did, you had to do the Bible, mm-hmm. Bible verse. Uh, my brother always beat me to uh, a Jesus wept. <laughs> uh, but hers always was, I once was young, Psalm 86, I once was young, now I'm old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. That stayed with me. When I was in college, finally, uh, Grandma Callie wrote me a letter every two weeks. It took $5 of the $15 that she made every two weeks and sent it to me. I didn't need it, didn't ask for it, but I had a dilemma. I thought if I said to her, please don't send it, it would be misunderstood. And so I, I finally decided, this was my first year in college, I finally decided the only way I could show my gratitude to my family was to make the most of my college years and to send the best grades home I could send home. I went from being a lackadaisical um, clown to a serious scholar early and I I, I feel I owe that to her. The other uh, impact on me that was lifelong was a man everybody called Grandpa Jesse. He had been 10 years old when the slaves were set free, which meant that he was born in 1855. The year I was to leave for college, I remember my my aunt saying, my father's young sister saying to me, she said, Grandpa Jesse is not going to be with us much longer. You get your notebook and pencils and go and interview him. Get the history of our settlement. He knows the history of our little community here. No one else knows it. When he goes in the ground, we will not have access to it. So you go and interview him and get that information, right? So I did. I got arranged to have a whole week with him every day for, uh, from 7 to 5. By Wednesday morning, I realized I was hearing something I wouldn't hear anywhere else. It was just amazing. He said, Brother Wood, I remember the day we slaves learned that we've been set free. He didn't quite say it that way, but that's what he was saying. The Union soldiers rode upon the plant, plantations. They'd get all slaves together. And um, I've got something I want to share with you all. So finally, after two, three hours, we were all together under this big old tree. And he's sitting up on a horse so he could see us all and read from this paper. And finally, after reading it the second time and nobody said anything, he kind of puzzled and uh, said, I don't think you all understand, Mr. Lincoln has set y'all free. And he said, finally, the old guru said to the young man, I said, listen, young man, um, won't you go back 
tell Mr. Lincoln that whatever it is he's done, we, we, we're grateful to him, but we know he's a great God Almighty that give us what he called the great jubilee, the great jubilee. Now they were able, and they couldn't even read the scriptures, to draw out of them the scriptures that jubilee paradigm, which is the hinge of Jesus' whole ministry, Luke 4 and Acts 4, that whole scripture, the spiritual and economic transformation of society, that's what it's about. The economy is the economy of grace, right? That's what I learned from Grandma Kelly and from Grandpa Jesse. So I'd like to say <clears throat> that when I'm in my teen years, I am deeply impacted by two folks who at that time were about at the age where I am now. I'm 87, and I just, I cherish the opportunity to interact with young people and to hear their questions, the things that they care about, and uh, share anything in the story of old people like myself who may have something that might or might not be useful to them, but at least if they're interested, I let it flow. In terms of the role of education in your family, because you talk a lot about education being sort of a, a gateway into a better life. Absolutely, and, and well said. Was that something that you were raised with? Was, was your family, was your community a big um, influence on that, or is that something that you feel that you discovered yourself? All of the above, mm-hmm. all of the above. Um, first of all, um, education is highly prized by us, uh, by the slave community, uh, descendants, first 50 years out of slavery, uh, from 1865 to 1915. Slaves who had no money, no anything, created over 115 uh, black colleges and universities when they had nothing to work with except something in here, something in here, something in the head, something in the heart, you know. And they leveraged that into learning institutions the college my wife and I uh, attended, we met in college, uh, have been in each other's life for 16, 67 years. Uh, it was expected by our families. In fact, in my case, not only did they plan for my, uh, my, my education as far as I was prepared to go, when I went to college, my dad used to raise hogs to pay my tuition. So when tuition time came around, he had already planned it, so he'd, he'd, he'd be, have three or four hogs to take to the market and sell, pay the tuition, right? It's pretty remarkable, yeah. you know. Um, my, my mother and my father had attended uh, a, what uh, today would be a, probably like a two-year junior college, but it was the early days of Virginia State University, which is now Virginia State University at Ettrick. They attended that when it was a kind of an institute at that point, they went um, just before, just around the First World War time, they were there. <clears throat> our, our family is, our, our daughter is an educator, my wife is an educator, our son's banker, uh, he makes the money. <laughs> um, and so education has been part of our passion, and um, I realized I, I guess I'd say it this way. My last stand in education was Harvard University. I did undergraduate at Virginia Union, and then I went to Harvard after King's death. I worked with Dr. King for the whole 10 years of his national work. And when we lost him, 
I had already been in a conversation with him about how do we, how do we get our, how do we get get the economic dimension into the serious dialogue and, and the work. And um, he had 1,200 urban pastors five weeks before his death, let's see, um, late in February of 68. 1,200 urban pastors at an uh, old hotel on North Miami Beach called um, Sheridan Ford Ambassador's Hotel, I remember it. And uh, about 1,200 urban pastors. Because I had been working with a, a man named Leon Sullivan, Dr. Leon Sullivan, he's huge. You, know, you cannot think of Martin's work without thinking of Sullivan. There's three people, I throw out their names. One named Samuel Proctor, talking about education now, Dr. Proctor. Uh, was uh, my wife and I were both students of his. He was one time president of Virginia Union. He was a co-founder of Peace Corps with Sergeant Shriver. Just names that people don't know. But if you're going to be educated in the greatness of America, you're going to have to know these names, right? But here's the difference in in, in uh, the historically black colleges and universities in the mainstream schools, and we've lost some of this because as our young people are now no longer. Big numbers going to HBCUs, they're going to the mainstream schools. They are missing something that the grandmamas and the granddaddies understood. Now, I would simply say it is the why of the beloved society, the why, right? We're big on the why over there. We're short on the how. Harvard and MIT and Virginia Tech and all of those kinds of places, they they're big on the how, short on the why. So we got to get together. That's why we've done the ancestors. The ancestors help us to understand how do you bring together the why and the how. Then we'll save America and all of its people. Well, so since we've been talking a little bit about the beloved community, um, do you want to sort of describe in your own words what that means to you yes. and what, what King meant it to be? Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. I, I like to think of the beloved community as a zone of uh, energy, compassion, caring, it's love, power, and justice. Justice, justice uh, helps love and power to have their appropriate domains. Without justice, it's gonna be all power and no love, all love and no power, either one is useless, but when love and power are balanced, that's where you got beloved community. It has specific outcroppings, especially in the economics. If you get the economics and the ethics right, everything else falls. And economics is primary. But you'll either have a society that is hung up on the love of money, or what I call the money of love. If either money is going to be your boss, or it's going to be your servant. I think those are the two ways I think about it. So the beloved community is about beloved economy, on one side of the economy, on one side of the coin, it's a coin. Let's think of it as a coin. On one side of the coin is community, on the other side is economy. Um, community is such a profound notion. Every family is a community. You know, I mean, it's like the hologram. The family is one of the one of those circles within the big picture. Um, but also, it's the willingness, otherwise it, it would be optimism without reality. Beloved community, people, you know, kind of like to put it down, says that this is, 
you know, it's either power or community. It's not. It's power and community. That's the way I think about it. Yeah. So when did you first hear about the concept of beloved community? You know, it's a great question. I'll tell you what it does. Uh, why I love that question. I think um, I had not thought of it as a specific uh, idea. I, I, I got into the movement about 59, 58, 59. We have the potential, this American potential excites me, but so few people seem to get it right. It's either it's either I'm 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 all halo and you're all horns. This whole thing of naming nations and 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 uh, people as demonic and stuff. And it's not just Trump. We've had we've had what we decried with Trump. We've had it before Trump. Trump is simply out front without you know trying to be correct politically correct, but we've had all of that stuff throughout our American history, right? So, beloved community has always been uh, out of sight. It's almost like seeds underground with no rain, so they never come above ground. You know what's underground. I think the best of America's been underground, and, and, and each succeeding generation seems to be able to bring a little more moisture into the picture. So maybe a few more things grow. I, I think of that with King. I think we got a few more seeds above ground. If you have people who contribute to the economy as they are able and people to take from the economy as they need it, it's a very sophisticated, fundamental idea, but you have to work that out. King said that if you blend the best of capitalism and the best of socialism, leave off the, 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 the debilitations, the best of each system, you come up with Acts chapters 2 and chapter 4, which is the post-Pentecost community. And when you do that, you probably, and, and given our cultural and historical uh, uh, settings, you probably come up with something you might call a mass-based private ownership system. I'm not saying let's let's get away with the systems we have. I'm not saying that. I said let's direct, redirect them. It's like redirecting the river. That's what we have to do in America. You don't turn the river with a snap of your finger. You got to have the engineers and you got to you know so many processes you got to go through. I think it can happen in a generation. It could happen in 18 years, 20 years. That's, but if, it never happens if you never start. Now I do the theology of this thing. They do the economics of it. I, I like to think of myself as a Jack Leg economist, <laughs> but, I, 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 but I'm serious about the theology. And I think if you get theology and economics right, you got the same thing. So we ought to be more patient with each other's horns and halos, because everybody got their own horns. Everybody got their own halos. of his upbringing in Virginia and the backbones of his formative years, 
Dr. Virgil Wood has created a strong foundation to continuing the vision Dr. King started all those years ago. In Dr. Wood's book, In Love We Trust, Lessons I Learned from Martin Luther King, he cultivates powerful statements of the dark realities that America must face in order to create a true beloved community. In it, he writes, if racism doesn't stop you, then fear surely will. Here is Dr. Wood speaking more on beloved community and its implications in today's socio-political climate. So do you think Dr. King wouldn't want someone, if they were someone who's listening to this, is hearing about beloved community for the first time, do you think he wouldn't want them to place beloved community on a political spectrum? Do you think he would want it to be beyond those divisions? I think it's... uh I think it's beyond the politics, but it involves politics, yeah. No, I don't think he would ever have gotten into politics, and I don't think it depends on politics. And a lot of my colleagues don't, who kind of debate this issue. Dick Gregory used to say, if you put on a shoe, we're talking about whether, whether we've got to wait for the system to shift before people can be free. Dick Gregory says, if you put on a shoe that's too small for your foot, uh, the shoe won't wear the foot out. The foot will wear the shoe out, right? I think about it that way. If I th- next year in 2019, African people, African African American people, we've been in America 400 years. Jamestown, 1619. If we had to wait for the goodwill of the system or the government to will to be willing that we African Americans uh, have our dignity. Uh, equity, if we had to wait for that, we'd be still back there in 1868. In other words, you have what Gandhi said, Gandhi said, be the change you want, right? To hell, I say to hell with the system sometimes. (laughs) Uh, It's a way to think about how do you relate to the systems. You relate to the systems based on your own integrity and the system will adjust itself to what enough people have decided will be their lifestyle. And I think America, I think there is a beloved America. There's an ugly America, but there's a beloved America. And, and the beloved America has not asserted itself enough. And so beloved America would be assertive. Ugly America is aggressive. And, and so, so it's more in the hands of the beloved America to live out what it believes. For example, the work I do now with these, uh, I think of where uh, children going to school this fall. Children going to school this fall. Uh, educators going to those schools. They don't have, if they think about it, you probably rather, rather not think about it. When I leave home in the morning, will I be back home at night? And often, that is determined by one kid who has been overlooked, not loved, or whatever. So we have no choice but to do two things, I think, two things. One is, we must reshape our institutions so that no person feels that they're dirt. No person. We've got to get so good at that, that everybody is concerned about finding out if 
if everybody in that place feels good about life, or, or at least has a chance to be drawn into an atmosphere that says, you are somebody. I don't care what anybody says to you. You are somebody. You see people, you see ordinary people have extraordinary stories. Seldom have a chance to tell that story. What do we have for each other except to share each other's stories and to honor each other's pathway? Um, so you kind of touched a little bit about the, the individual role in creating a beloved community. Um, and one thing that I sort of came across while doing all this reading for beloved community is sort of this concept of fear as a catalyst for positive action versus fear as an inhibitor. And it, and it blinds you, you know, because there are some people in this beloved community effort who took the fear like I, I was, I was reading an, an account of Martin Luther King talking about how he he grew up fairly privileged, um, yeah, and mm-hmm. educationally and societally with with his uh, with his family. And there is there is one instance in his life where he was pulled over by the police for speeding and yeah. was going to be taken to the jail, but he didn't recognize where he was going in the back of the car, and he felt that fear. And it was sort of after that that he realized that that was the fear he needed to feel mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to be able to understand sure. his yes. his neighbor's struggle. Exactly. Um, and I, I just wonder, because fear can be so blinding on both sides of the spectrum for people who have a fear of diversity and a fear of minority people, but then there's also people who have fear of police officers mm-hmm. and, and fear of the government because they've, they've had so much taken away from them on both sides. Mm-hmm. So... What do you think is sort of the individual level of learning how to get past that blind fear and to sort of have that king moment of using the fear as a catalyst towards mm-hmm. towards creating the beloved community? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends on who's having the fear. You will stay trapped in your fear unless somebody impacts you in such a way that you understand that you're not trapped where you are. Uh, I think that's a way of thinking about if somebody's drowning uh, and um, somebody comes up to rescue them. There is a moment in that that the drownee has to surrender himself to the capacity of the person who wants to save them. Otherwise they're thrashing around and both go under, right? It's sort of like the risk you make for people who are trapped by fear, and you understand that. Uh, how do you help them, how do you help them uh, face the fear? See, Martin's fear was, if they, when you mentioned this, it was a small one, but the one that he really talked about was the night when he was arrested and um, they were taking him about three and a half hours to Reedsville Prison, and it felt like they were taking him on some lonely road to, to, to lynch him, and that's the way he feared. And they had the, had the German shepherd dog in the back there with him. I mean, could you imagine the horror of all of that? Brave people are, are brave in spite of fear. It's not that they're without fear. It's just that they've decided that 
whatever the cost is going to be, that this is something worthy of my life, giving my life. King said, if I have to die, I want to die for poor people. And if I have to die, I want to die among poor people. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't hankering for martyrdom. He wasn't, he wasn't that kind of person. He loved life. But if it's required, and he says, I, I want to be willing to say yes. Yeah. I think also sort of touching back on sort of the individual's role in creating a beloved community, it's also feeling like you have the ability and the tools to participate and that you're welcome to the table to participate mm -hmm. in, in a community. Mm -hmm. um, there was a quote from Randolph Bourne where he was in a period of isolation and he said, I would give anything for the feeling of participation, for the feeling of being welcome to participate in a community. So I feel that that's definitely something in, in a very polarized society I think there's a lot of people who feel that they don't have the tool set or, or the words or the ability or just simply the invitation to participate. What do you think, maybe touching back earlier when, uh, before we started this interview when you, when you were talking about the, the family conversations, the mm -hmm. family conversations at dinner, if you want to sort of recount that and talk about just sort of the importance of starting at home and creating a beloved community and working outward. I want to start off with the notion that I, I was introduced to. I don't see many people having dealt with this idea. There's a, there's a psychologist, uh, he's Muslim, uh, black Muslim, who's in a book called The Self as Community. Mm -hmm. There is a sense in which you can make peace with life before you move towards others. Uh, but also there's a field of uh, psychology uh, that talks about grounding, focusing. I think your biggest challenge is not so much how do you get along when you're with people, as much how do you get along with yourself. How do you work that through so that when it comes to the other, you have some presence to make available, otherwise you will be lonely in a crowd. And so I think it's that interplay that we have to deal with. If you're at home with yourself, if you can figure out how to be at home with yourself, you've got something to give when it comes to others. I think a lot of people, and we have this common background in Charlottesville, right. of um, there's a lot of things that Charlottesville feels ashamed of, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of things that need to have a conversation and I think there's a lot of people there's that division about about the Robert E. Lee statue about mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what that symbolizes right. and there's a there's a landscape architect uh, by the name of John Lang and he talks about this concept of symbols of affiliation and it's talking a little bit about how the the physical environment around us is sort of are, are, are the symbols that give our community meaning. And so that could be a flag or a statue or even a certain kind of architecture. Um, and I think there's a big debate right now in the United States, particularly around statues, about what do we want our symbols of affiliation to be? Do we want them to, to remember this part of history and honor some part of it? 
is it honoring or is it just remembering? And I mm-hmm, think that mm-hmm. there's a really, really big division mm-hmm, between mm-hmm. people who feel yes, yeah. discomfort seeing things like the Robert E. Lee statue, but then there's people who see it as a, as simply a historical, um, as a historical figure. And so I was wondering, in terms of if we're going to create a beloved community, mm-hmm. there's how do we deal with those two sides of an argument? Okay, yeah, yeah. I uh, have two kinds of comments about that. One is about the church and the cross. There is research that shows that the cross was not a symbol of Christendom until after Constantinople, Constantine, uh, three, th- uh, th- uh, 313, yeah, 313 BC, um, takeover of Christendom. Christendom s- s- surrendered to Caesar. It became Caesar. The, the cross became a symbol for the world when it was used as a symbol of war. Before that, there's a research has been done on the catacombs, art in the catacombs, and it shows that the cross does not appear anywhere in the art of the catacombs, on the walls and so forth. The only two symbols that appear are real symbols of the resurrection. The cross is not related to the resurrection, it's related to death in the old world, from Pentecost until Constantine. In the catacombs, the symbols you have are the loaf and the fish. What feeds life? Bread, wine, fish, symbols of sustainability. Before Constantine, the church did not um, sanction war. It did not sanction violence. In fact, it was a jubilee beloved community. to Dr. Virgil Wood for partaking in such an enlightening discussion, and again to the Virginia Tech Honors College and the Policy Strategic Growth Area Group for making this discussion possible. Thank you also to Ross Walter for making original music for this podcast series. You can listen to Ross's music at soundcloud.com slash R-O-S-S-W-A-L-T-E-R. This episode and the ones to follow, including a conversation with Dr. Harvey Cox of Harvard Divinity School, author of The Market is God and the Secular City, will be available at janestheory.com under the Beloved Community Project tab. That's J-A-N-E-S-T-H-E-O-R-Y dot com.